Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. All right, when uh, I was a brick mason foreman, jobs always started the same way. I would be handed a set of blueprints. And from the blueprints, I could determine, and it it was a combination of two things. Uh, The bigger the jobs, they got more into the specs, specifications of the building. So you would have blueprints and you'd have a spec book. But those two things combined told you how to construct the building that was given to you. And it always started that way. But one thing also that was common, I mean, I think rarely did I ever, maybe a few times on a house, build a foundation. Because around here, we like to pour concrete and not use masonry for our foundations. But some of the homeowners and stuff still use masonry. And uh, usually when we'd show up on a job, The foundation was already set. The foundation was already poured. All we had to do is take the plans, take the material, and build upon it to envision, really to bring about the imagination, the work of the architect, to bring that forward. And today in our study, I want us to look at three principles. I realize that, um, (laughs) well, I've been around here for 24 years, and... uh, I have mentioned these three principles. They're not new as far as hearing them, but I've never taught about them. So I'm asking the question today of why Calvary Chapel? The three principles are simply the verse-by-verse teaching of the Word of God, the belief in the work of the Holy Spirit for today, and the longevity of pastors. These are three reasons that developed in me as a young man in my mid-20s that actually it got to the point... Because when I talk about why Calvary Chapel, I was thinking about this as I was coming over this morning. And uh, there were no Calvary Chapels in Lake County, Illinois, back when I was thinking about these. Calvary Chapel did not exist here. There were three in the whole state of Illinois, uh, one down in Blue Island, one in Elk Grove, Pastor Phil's church that still exists although not in Elk Grove right now. Um, and uh, it's still called Elk Grove, though, but they're in a different town. Anyways, uh, and then, Dave, where was the third one? You guys? Uh, O'Hare. No, O'Hare. Oh, was it? I thought it was the church that birthed this one. Where did we come from? Oh, Elgin. Elgin, correct. O'Hare didn't exist yet. That probably was coming soon, but Elgin. So we came from Elgin as a church, and you guys should know that church history. But this property was donated to the Calvary Chapel movement, and the pastor at Elgin said, we'll take it, and so moved himself, some of the congregation. I asked Dave because Dave and Linda were part of that move, and uh, he should know. 
the original history. But at the time, there were no Calvary chapels in Lake Villa. So I was thinking about this as I developed these three things in my mind about why Calvary Chapel, verse-by-verse teaching of the Word of God, the belief in the work of the Holy Spirit for today, and the longevity of pastors. As I got into the Calvary Chapel movement and then coming back, although I really never thought this way about it, but in reality, I would have to pioneer these things in this area. And... uh that's how it is for many in the Midwest because Calvary Chapels really weren't that known here in the Midwest. Very known as we came out of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa on the West Coast. The East Coast has blossomed with Calvary Chapels. The Midwest, uh, we're still trying to catch up to that. And so we're going to look at these things, the significance of them. And uh, as I went out to California, I would have these things, two of them be reinforce the one, the longevity of pastors is just something that I have observed in the Calvary Chapel movement. So today, as we consider why Calvary Chapel, I'd like us to consider these three principles that are not only make us unique as a church body, but are to be celebrated and to be used to drive us as we serve together to reach others for Jesus. And so we'll begin with, and this is, uh, verse-by-verse teaching, but this is a topical message. And so we're going to begin in Isaiah 28, verse 13. And our first point, verse-by-verse teaching of the Word of God. It was during my last message, the last time I did a topical message was the last Sunday of 2023. And I had mentioned the importance of Christian radio to Lily and I when we were in our early 20s. So I keep reinforcing this, and the youth are upstairs to kind of hear these things, because I realize that you will be have to make these decisions in your own life um, once you take that big step and get away from the mom and dad's house. You'll have to make those choices of why Calvary Chapel, why whether either you're going to continue, and we pray and hope that you do, in the faith, to walk in faith. You have to make faith become real to you. You have to um, take that step where it is no longer, why are you a Christian? Oh, because my mom and dad were and took us to church all the time. It has to become something that becomes real in you, and it, you don't have to wait until you're in your 20s. Uh, it's not that Lily and I discovered faith in our 20s. Uh, we've discovered that in our teens, but we had to make that decision of how we were going to serve the Lord and where we were going to serve the Lord. So there in that Christian radio station, WCRM 103.9 FM from Dundee, Illinois, they had great music, but we discovered five Calvary Chapel pastors. And uh, I remember the pastors to this day. The first one that I ever can recollect hearing was Raul Reese and he had a 15 minute radio show called Mana for Today. Today his radio show is a half hour long and it's called Somebody Loves You but um, Raul was just a Hispanic guy who spoke English very bad and loved the Lord obviously and even Pastor Chuck would at times talk about Raul giving a message and he's like he he did so bad as far as theology goes, he goes, but people got saved. It's just God um, put his anointing upon Pastor Raul. And you can pray for Pastor Raul, his wife, 
Sharon has cancer. And uh, actually, I saw posted this week on Calvary Chapel magazine a conference that she did about serving God. When I saw the post at first, I was thinking, oh, no, did she pass away? But she had not. But um, it seems that her time on this earth is going to be short. So keep them in your prayer, Raul and Sharon Reese. But Pastor Chuck Smith and Greg Glory, Jeff Johnson, who went to be with the Lord this past week, and David Rosales. These five pastors uh, were on the Calvary Chapel or on uh, WCRM, and I don't remember any other pastors. I'm sure there were, but I don't remember anybody else but the five Calvary Chapel guys who were on this Christian radio station. They tried to influence the Chicago area. They tried to get church going here. Uh, Raul would come out and do a weekend I have radio gathering. I forgot exactly how they called them. David Rosales came out this way. They attempted to help plant Calvaries in Illinois, but with no success. But possibly with success because Lily and I are part of that, even though they had no clue that it was happening. At the same time, I had a friend who had been to the tent days. He was a bricklayer. We worked together. You guys, many of you know him, John Marcourt. And uh, he had heard Pastor Chuck as a teenager. And uh, I think he had gotten the uh, teaching through the Bible of Pastor Chuck. And he was very familiar with the Calvary Chapel movement. And so I had that at the same time happening. But there was all these things connecting And like many in many churches today, people get accustomed to topical messages being given, uh, where it's more about the topic being addressed than actually the proclamation of the Word of God. And often the verse of Scripture that they use for the topical message becomes a springboard which the preacher preaches without ever looking at the context of the passage that he's using kind of like I'm doing, but I'm going to give you a little context today. In every one, I'm going to give you a wrap-up of the context, just that I'm not guilty of this same thing. But it's been said that a text without a context is a pretext. And a scripture read without thought to the surrounding verse or verses is misconstrued. Each verse lies inside a chapter. Each chapter inside a book inside a testament and inside the whole scripture to properly pull the truth from a scripture it must be understood in the context of the segment in which the it is in the chapter in the book and as a whole so while many bible verses could be used to show the value of verse by verse teaching i've chosen three that are significant to the Calvary chapel movement and we begin with isaiah 28:13 and then we'll look at nehemiah 8:8 8, 8, and Acts 20:27. 20, so Isaiah 28:10 says, "For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little." And it, it is repeated almost for word in 28:13. So that is given to us twice there. And Isaiah and the other prophets brought a warning to Israel at this time of their coming judgment. 
And in plain, simple words, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. However, Isaiah was actually being mocked by religious rulers of his day and maybe the teachers of his day, actually accusing him of dumbing down the word of God in such a sense that he was teaching a method that was meant for children and not for adults. But I think sometimes we need to get the basics down, even as adults, to build our faith. And since Judah refused to hear the simple word of God, God would bring them to a place where they would be brought into captivity. And he said, in the context of this passage, you will hear the tongues of foreigners. Uh, the Assyrians, and we know the Babylonians would ultimately come at this time. The Assyrians were an issue for them. And uh, they had tried to make a covenant with Egypt to deliver them from the Assyrians. And God would deliver them at this time, the southern tribe of Judah, from the Assyrians. But Judah's worship of false gods, combined with their dependence on foreign power, would ultimately lead them in the context to a place of shield and death. Ultimately, it led to the Babylonian captivity. And in Amos, we find... Actually, four things that are mentioned because of the transgression of Judah. Amos 2, verses 4 through 5, it says, For three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers followed. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall be devoured. It shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. So the four things that God brought judgment upon them is given to us here in Amos 2, verses 4 and 5. They despise the law of God. They no longer cared for the word of God, nor did they keep the commandments of God. Their lies led them astray, but it was also lies that their fathers had followed as well. And God said, I'm going to bring fire upon Judah. Now, Pastor Chuck taught us to feed the sheep, to teach line upon line, verse by verse through the books of the Bible. In doing so, it keeps us balanced as we don't get off on any pet doctrines or projects that maybe are important to us. We have to cover the whole counsel of God's word. We get to feed the people with the word of God. And as we feed the people, the people grow in their faith. And in the growth, we produce fruit for the glory of God. And God is seeking for pastors to do this, to feed his flock, to teach them verse by verse, to stick to what the Bible actually says without adding to it. In Nehemiah 8, 8, we have our second point. So the importance of verse-by-verse teaching through the Word of God. And we find it in Nehemiah 8, 8. And again, these are verses that are very important to the Calvary Chapel movement. Nehemiah 8, 8, and the Word of God. It tells us, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So contextually, this was in Nehemiah 8.8, where we're at. So looking at the context, it was an important month for the Jewish people. It was the beginning of the Feast of Trumpets, and the first 
day of that month, and then the Day of Atonement would be on the 10th. The Feast of Tabernacles would take place from the 15th to the 21st, and then there was a special Sabbath rest on the 22nd of that month. All these things take place in the fall uh, festivals in Israel at this time. And on the first day of the month, it tells us, in Nehemiah 8, that Israel gathered in an open square before the water gate, and Ezra brought out the book of the law. He brought out the Bible, we would say, but they kept a copy of God's word in the temple. And so this is telling us that he brought out the book of the law, and that would be from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And they constructed a platform for Ezra to stand upon when he read the word of God. And he read it from morning till midday. And the people were attentive. And when Ezra stood to read God's word, all the people stood. So maybe four hours, maybe five hours, maybe six hours, Ezra just stood up and he read the word of God. And it helped the people probably to be standing as well. It's hard to fall asleep. Not impossible, but it's harder to fall asleep when you're on your feet. But he read from morning till midday. The people were attentive. And when Ezra blessed the Lord, it tells us that the people answered amen and amen. And they lifted their hands and worshiped. And afterwards they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. With Ezra were 13 men, along with the Levites, that helped the people to understand the law. Thus, reading distinctly from the book in the law of God, they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. We have to understand how fortunate we are today to be able to have the Word of God. I mean... Not too many people. You had to be really wealthy to have a copy of the entire Word of God at that time. It was kept at the temple. Maybe you would keep a scripture that was written down. All you had, for the most part, were memory verses. Maybe, like the Ethiopian, he had purchased a scroll of Isaiah. Maybe you could purchase one book of the Bible. But that was not the common thing. I mean, these things were handwritten. And so it took a lot. And they were not only handwritten out. If you made one mistake, they trashed the whole thing and had to start over again. So it was quite a process to duplicate the Word of God. But it's also because of that process, it helps us understand that the Word that has been transferred to us today is good And we can rely upon it. But the Levites and the 13 men who stood along with Ezra went out to help give the people the sense, to help them understand the reading of the Word of God. And the Word of God caused the people to mourn and to weep when they heard it. Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites then encouraged the people, don't be crying, eat and drink, celebrate. This is really a good day. The day was holy unto the Lord, and the people discovered that there was joy in the Lord, and that the Lord was their strength, and they greatly rejoiced. So like Nehemiah's day, Calvary Chapel pastors love to read distinctly from the Word of God while giving the sense of the passage to help our people understand as we teach through the Bible. That is something I discovered 
as a young man listening to whether it was Raul Reese or Pastor Chuck or David Rosales um, at the time he was in Ontario. And I didn't know there was an Ontario, California. I just remember thinking they even have one in Canada, a Calvary Chapel in Canada. It was the wrong Ontario, but um, I didn't know. I mean, I was just knew it all of this stuff. But I love to hear the teaching of the Word of God. But Calvary Chapel is not unique in this, although we are known for this. Matthew Henry, who was a theologian from the, he lived in the 1500s, but his commentary set, it's on the second shelf right behind me. It's actually my dad's set. But he said, what they read, they expounded. So they read the word and they expounded upon the word of God. Another book that I have for my dad, I was going to bring it with me, but it's in my office. It's Haley's Bible Handbook. And uh, this was a book that Pastor Chuck used to talk about a lot because it is where Pastor Chuck discovered this method of verse-by-verse teaching through the Word of God. He would often talk about giving away his Haley Bible Handbooks to the new believers. And so this is just a small commentary that's easy to read and you can give to someone. I've gave copies away. I used to have copies that I would use to give away. The copy I have was my dad's and I I won't give that one away. Someone may receive it after me, but they may not even know it was dad's book. They need to know these things. Anyways, he got a new copy and, you know, they have the paper cover on the copies and his book said something different, but it's still on the inside page of the copy that I have. It says this. So this is the inside title page. And at the very bottom, it says the most important page in this book is 814. It's like, well, that's almost the end of the book. So Pastor Chuck had said, I went over to the most important page. I wanted to see what this guy had to say. And this is what he had to say. The most important thing in this book is this simple suggestion that each church have a congregational plan of Bible reading and that the pastor's sermon be part or from the part of the Bible read each week, thus connecting the pastor's preaching with the people's Bible reading. At that time, Pastor Chuck had been 17 years or nearing 17 years in ministry, um, the 17-year number is simply, uh, he was 17 years in the four-square denomination before he became part of the Calvary Chapel movement. So he only had two years of trop- topical messages. And so every two years, he would go to his bishop and say, I need a new church. I've run out of things to talk about. So send me somewhere else. But he talks about moving to Newport Beach, and he loved to surf. And it's California, and it's not as crazy as it was then compared to now. So he was at a church. The two years was coming up, and he's thinking, I'm going to have to leave, and I don't want to leave. The kids are in school. We like this area. Besides, I can surf every day. And uh, he had the place where he wanted to be, and so he discovered this method. The first book he went, took his church through. He spent a year in First John. And then they spent two years in Romans. And then at that point, he started teaching through the Word of God. But he got this idea from the most important page of Haley's Bible Handbook. Now, don't get me wrong. Pastor Chuck was a master topical teacher. 
He, we are known for verse by verse teaching through the Word of God, but Pastor Chuck taught a topical message every Sunday morning throughout his ministry. So he was a master at doing topical teaching, but Calvary Chapels became known through the verse by verse teaching of the Word of God. He had wrote about in his book, Living Waters, he said, I realize, hey, I've got the whole Bible. I can spend the rest of my life here. And sadly, many pastors have neglected to teach their people, reading distinctly from the book, giving the sense, helping them to understand the Bible. The third subpoint of the verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word is Acts chapter 20, verse 27. And this simply comes at a time when Paul is heading to Jerusalem. He had made a vow to the Lord. He's trying to get to Jerusalem where he can complete this vow. And uh, he didn't have time to go to Ephesus. And so he had them come to him that he could meet with them on the way. And as he made that journey, he was on a beach in where the Ephesian church elders came to meet with him. And as he was making his way back to Jerusalem, he began to talk about his ministry. This was very hard on all of them. Uh, They had been prophesying in every city that he traveled to that only chains and death await you when you go to Jerusalem. And there are some great passages in this section when Paul is talking to these elders from Ephesus on that beach Like, none of these things move me. They're trying to persuade him not to go to Jerusalem. He said, I'm ready. None of these things move me. But he also said in this section, Acts 20, verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God's word. At that time of saying that, the whole counsel of God's word was the Old Testament. The New Testament was still being written. So when he talked about sharing the whole counsel of God's word, he was talking about what the Old Testament had to say, not the New Testament. And here we have churches today that reject even the the thought of even teaching from the Old Testament when the first century church, that's really all they had. There's much to learn from the Old Testament. The Old Testament teaches us not only about the formation of God's work from creation to the children of Israel, but also the why Messiah had to come. And uh, it gives us understanding of who Jesus Christ is and the work and ministry and mission that Jesus was called to. So Pastor Chuck, again, in Living Waters, he made commentary on this verse, declaring the whole counsel of God. He said, what a marvelous declaration for any minister to be able to make. I have declared to you the whole counsel of God. And I know only one way that a person can make that declaration, and that is to take a congregation through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Only when you have gone through the Bible from cover to cover can you safely say, I have declared to you all the counsel of God. God has been pleased to allow me to take the people of Calvary Chapel through the Bible seven times during my ministry. He actually was on eight and a half when he passed away, and he was in the book of Romans. Uh, Lily and I uh, happened to uh, come home from church that Sunday. We knew Pastor Chuck had 
lung cancer, and we knew he didn't have long on this earth. And uh, we came home that Sunday afternoon, and it's like, let's watch. You know, it's California, so catch the third service out there. So we saw his last teaching. But seven times during my ministry, and what a tremendous It has been tremendous each time. Nothing can compare to digging in the Word of God, verse by verse, book by book. So like Paul, we're responsible to declare the whole counsel of God's Word to our generation. It's one of the reasons here at Calvary Chapel that we teach the way we teach through the books of the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, said that backwards in order. It would be book, chapter, and verse. But we work our way through the Word of God in this way. And by doing so, we realize that once we've gone from Genesis to Revelation, that we'll be able to say, I have declared the whole counsel of God to our congregation. I have seven books to go. It's my own fault. I could have been done a long time ago, but I've repeated the gospel several times. Um, So we'll get her done. If the Lord allows me, um, but you'll have to wait a while because those seven books pick up in Proverbs and uh, it'll be a while before I get back around Proverbs seven to go for me. But the verse by verse teaching through God's word is a hallmark of Calvary chapels. Second, the belief in the work of the Holy Spirit for today. So I remember in my young 20s, it was the first time that I read through the word of God. It was a challenge from my cousin. Um, I think he had read through the Bible that year previous, and uh, somehow I got some kind of map of the Bible, so I just kind of kept track of it. You can have an app today that helps you do this, and all you do is pick up reading where you left off. But it took me more than a year, but I began to read through the Word of God. And uh, as I was reading through the book of Acts, I remember asking my dad, it's like, why don't we see the miracles? What about the miracles that we see in the book of Acts? And my dad gave a very sensationalist answer. He said, because once the church was given the canon of Scripture, the Spirit ceased to work in the way that we read about in the book of Acts. And I immediately said to him, well, why not? I don't know what he said after that, but we had a disagreement at that point. And this was probably one of very significant thing for me to begin to look into God's word and see what was going on in the denomination that I've been raised in, that it wasn't quite lining up with the word of God. So sensationalism, it's a group in the church today that believe that the miraculous gifts or, or the gifts of the spirit had a purpose that was unique in the early church, but ceased once we got the 66 books of the Bible. And so they would say, God doesn't work that way anymore. I remember that I wasn't satisfied with that answer. And it began my quest on learning about the Holy Spirit of God. And that quest still continues to this day. But three verses, very important to the Calvary Chapel movement, Zechariah 4.6, John 15.26, and Acts 1.8. I'm worried about my time today, but my third point is not that long. So I should be okay. So the descending dove, which is right behind us, we know this as kind of a hallmark logo for the Calvary Chapel movement. It's iconic, representing Jesus at his baptism. And it tells us in all four Gospels that the Holy Spirit in the form of the dove came upon the Lord. 
But that scene of Jesus' baptism is not necessarily what Calvary Chapel hinges its ministry off of. Actually, Zechariah 4.6 is one of the key verses for the Calvary Chapel movement. Zechariah 4.6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, context. The first temple had been destroyed, and Israel had returned from the Babylonian captivity, but they had not yet rebuilt the temple. They had laid the foundation, they had set up the altar, but they got preoccupied with other things. Life happened, and it was difficult. There was economic pressures. There were enemies that were not wanting to see the temple being built, and it was a difficult task. Nehemiah would show up to rebuild the wall. You guys should know these from Sunday school or from teaching here in our church, but Nehemiah would show up to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and it would have been 140 years since the Babylonians had tore it down. And when Nehemiah showed up, he went on a three, on the third day, he did a survey of the wall. He said, I didn't want anybody to know what I was up to. He knew why he returned. His purpose was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but at that time, he hadn't let anybody know why he came although he had permission from the king of the Medes and Persians to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. On the third day at night, he took this survey, and he mentions in Scripture the debris were so bad at times, he had to get off his donkey and walk because it was hard to pass through the areas. And this had been 140 years. Israel, Jerusalem, was in ruins, and it kind of stayed that way. But here in Zechariah 4, 6, it's talking about the rebuilding of the temple. The second temple was going to be built. The first temple had been built with might, with power. We had David, who was the architect, drew up plans, gathered building materials. His son, Solomon, had it constructed. And it was, we almost say, seven times greater than what the tabernacle was because where the tabernacle had one table for the showbread, uh, Solomon had seven made. Where there was one menorah, Solomon had seven menorahs in the temple. There was only one Ark of the Covenant still, but they made it larger, they made it greater. But this had been destroyed. And what Solomon had built would never be reconstructed in that glory. But God was calling the small remnants of children of Israel to rebuild the temple. But it wouldn't be by their might. It wouldn't be by their power. It would be by the Spirit of God. They had faltered because of the economic and political pressure around them, but also apathy. Uh, Haggai 1.4 speaks about their building their paneled houses. They had time to build their homes, but not time to build the temple. I think sometimes we can falter in these areas as well. We neglect the work of God while we continue to take care of the stuff that we value and that's important to us. Speaking about the rubble there, in Zechariah 4.7, the prophecy goes on, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. 
So some believe the great mountain was the building project to build a temple. I remember as a brick mason, I started with the stories, I'll keep going, but when I pulled up on the job site to get the blueprints for the library in Schaumburg, Illinois, they'd already had the skeleton, the steel was up on the building, and usually we built the structure, and so it's one brick, one block at a time, one stone at a time, and so you walk on, you see the foundation, but you don't really see the realized structure until it's completed. But here I could see the frame and my heart sunk. It was, it actually wasn't the largest job that I'd ever built, but it looked big and it was big. It is a big building. So some believe that the construction was it. I think, I feel perhaps it was the pile of rubble. It was a big mountain. They had all this debris that had been sitting around for a long time. And they had to first clear all that before they could rebuild the temple. They set out to build, but it had laid idle for 15 or 16 years. And yet God promised to accomplish the work by the power of His Spirit. In the same way, we must build our lives, our churches, upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Today, many churches, while seeking new ways to reach others with the gospel, have compromised the basic principles of the faith. They, This is because they have decided to build on the foundation other than that of Jesus Christ and without the power empowering of the Holy Spirit of God. But God has promised us, Jesus promised us the helper in John fifteen twenty six. It was hard for me to pull verses for uh, this section of talking about the Holy Spirit because there are so many we could pull from. But here, beginning in John chapter 14 through 16, Jesus, not continually, but every once in a while, he drops into a little section about teaching of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in John fourteen twenty six. But when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom my Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I say to you. So when the Spirit comes, He's being sent by the Father, He's going to teach you all things. Again, we go to John chapter 15, verse 26 again. It tells us in our passage, But when the helper, parakletos is the Greek word for that, it means to come alongside, he who comes alongside. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from my Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from my Father, he will testify of me. And so this is so important. The work of the Holy Spirit from John 14 through 16. Read through those three chapters and you'll drop into these sections that talk about the work of the Holy Spirit and the impact that it is to have upon a believer's life. He is the helper. He is the spirit of truth. He is the Holy Spirit. So the helper, as I just said, it comes from the Greek word parakletos, to come alongside Uh, According to Paulie Little, he described it this way, one who acts as our attorney on whom a believer calls for help. And just as the disciples had Jesus with them for three years, Jesus said, I'm going to be leaving, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to come alongside just as I've been for you. I'm going to send you another helper, the Paracletus, the Holy Spirit. 
The Spirit will be for us. And so as a young man in my 20s, as I read and learned about the Holy Spirit of God, the Lord began to work in my heart at an early time, exposing me to things and showing me things that I had not been taught before, that I had not seen before, and even experiencing things that I would never experienced before. And I still have that reliance on the Spirit of God today. I want Him to work in me and through me when I'm here in the pulpit, but when I'm outside of the pulpit. I want Him to work in you as you hear the Word of God being proclaimed to give us understanding, but also as we are out and about in this life. He is the Helper, but He's also the Spirit of Truth. In John 16, 13 through 15, it tells us the Spirit of Truth will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. And all things that my that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said he will take of what are mine and declare it to you. So he's spent, sent from the Father, from Jesus. He's declaring the things of the Father, the things of Christ, to us, He is the Spirit of truth who guides us into all truth, speaking under the authority of God the Father and God the Son, glorifying Jesus Christ Himself. He is the Holy Spirit, not a force, not a power, but the third person of the triunity of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And each person throughout the history of this world, we find that In the Old Testament, God the Father was at the forefront of the work. In the Gospel, Jesus, God the Son, was at the forefront of the work. And, I mean, Christ has these appearances in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit has uh, these appearances where He empowered priests, prophets, kings, individuals in the Old Testament. But the work was going to be different in the New Testament. We find that from the book of Acts forward, the Holy Spirit is that presence that is working among us, the Spirit of God. D.L. Moody, great evangelist of the 19th century, he said, the greatest need of the church today is more of the presence and power of the Spirit of God. And this is something that Peter also acknowledged in Acts 2:33. He said, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you see and hear. He gave an ex- explanation on the day of Pentecost. He said, what you are seeing is the Spirit of God being poured out upon a church, and that's what we need to see today. So we find in John's Gospel, especially here in verses 14 through 16, we discover that God, the Holy Spirit, He is the Helper, the Spirit of Truth. He is the help, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, is with us, and comes upon us. He is our teacher who testifies of Jesus. He convicts the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. He is our guide into all truth. He tells us of things to come. And most importantly, he glorifies Jesus by taking what is his and declaring it to us. We need the power of the Spirit working in our midst today. And our third verse, Acts 1.8 
I'm just limiting some of these, but Acts 1-8, very important to the power, Calvary Chapel movement and many churches, not just Calvary Chapel, but this one is key in the Calvary Chapel movement, where it says in Acts 1-8, the Lord speaking, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So another aspect of the Spirit's work in a believer's life is this coming upon of the Spirit. And it speaks about this baptism of the Holy Spirit, this filling of the Holy Spirit to empower us to be a witness for Jesus Christ in this world that we live in today. Pastor Chuck said of this, a big part of the manifold grace of God is the power to be a bold and effective witness And Jesus spoke these words to his disciples right before his ascension. They speak of the empowering of the Holy Spirit in the church that took place 10 days later on the day of Pentecost. And they were to be witnesses in three specific areas. He said in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So it began in Jerusalem. Well, in the Old Testament, there are examples that I mentioned before of the Spirit coming upon individuals. Joel prophesied of the Spirit coming upon doing a new work. In Joel 2, 28 and 29, he says, I shall come, it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men, I'm in this place of qualification here now. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. I also will pour out my spirit on my men servants, my maid servants in those days. And Peter and John used this passage, Joel 2, 28 and 29, as a proof text when the spirit poured out on the church on the day of Pentecost. And we find it repeated in Acts 2, 17 through 18. This baptism had to take place in Jerusalem first because Jesus said so. In Luke 24, 49, he said, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And that's why he said, In Jerusalem into all Judea and Samaria. It began in Jerusalem, but it has spread out from there throughout the world. This pattern, it can be followed wherever we go as the body of Christ. Wherever we are, this church becomes our Jerusalem. We could say, if we want to kind of picture it like being read from the book of Acts here, where they say Jerusalem, we say Lake Villa, where they say all um, Judea and Samaria, we might say all Kenosha County and Lake County or all Lake County and McHenry County or all Lake County and Cook County. Just trying to pick up the counties around here. And the end of the world is the end of the world, wherever we go throughout this world. And reliance upon the empowering work of the Holy Spirit is a hallmark of Calvary chapels. I've often had people asked about the plan, how we're going to grow our church. And in my head, I'm always thinking, Lord, pour out your spirit upon this place. Do something that we could never think of, we could never plan. Let your spirit be the one that 
expands this place, the spirit that teaches us, that fills us. You could say that for 24 years I've been waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to explode upon this house. And would you join me in praying for that, for our fellowship? Now this third point, I can't even get a Pastor Chuck quote out of this because he really didn't talk about this, but it was important to me and I'll tell you why. I was raised in a denomination when I was in my mid-twenties, and my dad was a pastor for 12 and a half years in that denomination. So I not only grew up in it, I was a PK, and I knew a lot about it. But it came to the point that the average length of stay for a pastor was two and a half years. And it seemed that just when a church could begin to build, they would get a new pastor and they would all start over again. The honeymoon period, first year. Everybody loves everybody in the honeymoon period. This is great. Second, third, and fourth year. I'm not sure I like what the pastor's up to. And so then trouble comes and there's buttings of heads and such. And a lot of times what I discovered in this denomination we were part of, pastors built their church not by planting themselves in one place, but by being in a place for about two, two and a half years and going to a bigger church and then being in that church for a few years to go to a bigger church. They just kept taking over larger churches without doing the work that was called upon them. One of my dad's friends said, I'm talking to him about this a few years after I think I was probably part of the Calvary Chapel movement. And when I had mentioned the two and a half years, he said, it's even worse than that. He said, it's 18 months now. The average stay of a pastor, a year and a half, and we're out of here. And my dad pastored Mount Carmel Baptist Church, and I listened several years ago to the dedication of their new building, where it kind of read like every six months there was a brand new pastor. There were many of them dying, so (laughs) it's like, well, we got to get another one. He just died, Um, and some left. But So my dad did a good thing in that he stuck. And he was able to build and plant in that place. So the New Testament is more difficult because we don't really see pastors being taught about in the churches. We have the apostles. We do have pastors being mentioned. um, But they seem to move around a lot. They were growing the church at that time. And they usually didn't plant in one place. We can think of Philip, who was there in Caesarea, Later on in his life, when Paul came back before he went to Jerusalem, um, before he was arrested in Jerusalem, he went to the house of Philip, the evangelist who had daughters who prophesied, and he kind of settled into an area. But we don't find those examples a lot in Scripture. But we do know that the apostles were faithful, all but one. And uh, many who came alongside were faithful until the end. But we do in the Old Testament, we have examples like Moses and Joshua, Now, we've been talking about this on Wednesdays. Maybe that's why it's in my heart. But Joshua 11.15, this really spoke to me as just a few weeks ago we looked at this. As the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. So Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, I'd mentioned this on the Wednesday. I mentioned, I think, last week as well. And I kind of view myself in that Joshua situation that... 
What I received from Pastor Chuck, I am trying to do that it might be said that I left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Pastor Chuck. So John did. Uh, maybe that could be said of me one day. I did have one of our church members, a Navy guy who, you know, when Navy's here, they're usually two or three years and they're out and about somewhere else just because duty calls. And he was excited about moving out to a place where there were going to be two Calvary chapels. And probably a year later, I was talking with him and I said, so where did you end up? What Calvary chapel did you end up? And he goes, neither. He goes, we ended up at a Baptist church. He said they were not Calvary chapels. And uh, he had said prior to his leaving that what you have here is what I feel the Calvary Chapel movement is supposed to be. He basically said that you've done well in that regard. I hope that I have. And so that's why I bring up Joshua, but also because he served from the time of Moses' death until his death, he served in that role, and he was 110 years old possibly around 30 years of ministry. Moses, another example of that from the age of 80 to 120 years. It took, now get this, and you think, Lord, why is it taking me so long to know your calling, what I should do with my life? Um, it took Moses 80 years to figure it out. But then he served faithfully for the next 40 years. Deuteronomy 34, 7, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. Joshua 24, 29, it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And it's not that God can't move pastors around, but what I realized early on in the Calvary Chapel movement is that God would have a pastor plant a church, and I didn't plant this church. I inherited it. But God would have a pastor plant a church and then keep them there and grow the ministry. And I think that's why I've been stubborn enough to stay through the years, though I didn't plant this place. A LifeWay research suggested that the average tenure of a pastor is 3.6 years. Another study suggests the average or typical tenure might be a bit longer, but while studies of effective leaders suggest that the average tenure of a, an effective leader is between 11.2 and 21.6 years, another study shows that most average stay of a pastor at a local church is between five and seven years. So I really love this. I pulled this out and it just seemed to fit fairly well with my life. Eight stages of a long-term pastoral ministry. Years one and two, seminary is behind me. I'm ready. Years three through five, why did I bother with seminary? <laughs> Years 5 through 7, will the real church stand up? Years 8 through 10, I love these people. Years 11 through 15, Lord, I want to be faithful. Years 16 through 25, uh, don't let me become too comfortable and start coasting. And I realized when I read that, 
It was around year 16 that I began taking classes with Horizon University and now with Western Seminary. I am looking forward to about a year and four months. We'll be done with it all because it's been almost 10 years. But apparently, Lord, don't let me get too comfortable. And I had to do that to myself. Anyways, 26 through 33. See, these last few points, I think this is where I'm at right now because of my age. Because I started later in life. So don't let me get comfortable. Help me to be a truly a shepherd. Help me to truly shepherd as I shepherd. They say 26 through 33. Let my heart burn brightly for the church's future. Year 34 and beyond. So those last three, I think that fits perfect for me right now. We not only have the examples of Moses and Joshua, and there are many other leaders that we could have talked about, but also the high priests and the kings. Exodus 28:41 says, So you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, sanctify them, that they be ministered to me as priests. Now, the high priest, he was priest until his death. So once he was anointed in that role, now you read about New Testament high priests, there were political positions by the Romans being set up. And that's why in the Gospels you read about uh, the real high priest and the not real high priest. And one time Paul uh, spoke against the high priest and Paul apologized and he said, I didn't realize it. Because some would say that he didn't acknowledge that man as the high priest because he was appointed, not anointed in that position. Yet they carried the Urim and the Thummim. They entered the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and their role was for life. Numbers 35.25 tells us that when someone accidentally killed someone and went to a city of refuge, it said he had to remain there, if innocent, it was an accidental death, he remained there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. And so they had their role until life. The kings were like that as well, especially once we get to David and the descendants after him. You read about David, you read about Solomon, um, Rehoboam, these kings only became king after their fathers died. And then they were king until they died. Sometimes they didn't last too long. Sometimes they lasted a long time. But it was a role that was until life. And we can read about the, the Vatic line in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. So I mentioned this on Wednesday, and I'm only going to clip a little short points out of this. Barna Group Research talked about pastors leaving the ministry. This is from 2022. A number of pastors have been serious consideration of quitting full-time ministry has risen dramatically over the past years. And they gave three major reasons. They were a top ten, but I'm only going to use three. Top three, the immense stress of the job, 56% said that. The feelings of loneliness and isolation, 43%. The current political divisions, 38%. But also they talked about the top three. They gave a longer list. I'm only mentioning the top three for pastors wanting to stay. 
And these were stronger. 83% of pastors who haven't considered quitting believe their ministry has value. 75% say that they have a duty to fulfill their calling. 73% say they are satisfied with their job. Clearly, we need to be praying for pastors with this renewed sense of calling in their lives that they would be directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. So why Calvary Chapel? Well, I noticed in the Calvary Chapel movement that there was longevity of pastors, and that was attracting to me early on. Now, this is not merely a Calvary Chapel thing. Here in Illinois this past week, there was a Baptist church down in Bailey City Baptist Church, Bailey City, Illinois. He celebrated 60 years of ministry. He's 88 years old. And uh, he said, when I went there, I went from Sunday to Sunday and finally just became the pastor. <laughs> Other churches contacted me wanting him to become their pastor, but I saw no reason to move. I became attached to the church, and I'm happy there. I just didn't see the need to move. And 60 years later, he's still serving, and his congregation loves him. This was written about him. He has baptized generations of people, sometimes children, their parents, and their grandparents. Pastor Chuck ministered in the Calvary Chapel movement from 1965 until his death in 2013. Pastor Jeff Johnson, I'd mentioned he went to be with the Lord this week on February 13th. He started a small Bible study in a gazebo in Downey, California at a park in 1973. And he ministered nearly 50 years there. He turned over the ministry in 2022, in November of 2022, I think because of his health. And the Facebook posting of their church, Calvary Chapel Downing, simply read, Well done, good and faithful servant. The longevity of pastors, another hallmark of the Calvary Chapel movement. Why Calvary Chapel? I've given you different reasons of why Lily and I became part of the Calvary Chapel movement. And they were significant and still are to me. You have to figure that out for yourself. Why Calvary Chapel? Well, I think the verse-by-verse teaching of the Word of God, the belief of the work of the Holy Spirit for today, and longevity of pastors are still important reasons why we should be part of this movement. And we need to consider that we're pioneers here. Uh, The guys from California tried it in the 80s, and they had no success. So we're doing pioneering work here in Lake County, and hoping that the Spirit of God will pour out upon this place. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to discover why. And once we discover these reasons why, help us, Lord, to invest fully into this place if you choose to keep us here. That's my prayer, Lord, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. (laughs) 